Thank you, Galen. It's great to be here and it's wonderful to see. Can you hear me okay? How is the sound? Okay. It's wonderful to see you all in person there in the Zendo as well as other fellow Zoomers. <laughs> and uh, it's great to reconnect with the Houston Zen Center. I feel very warmly welcomed and I've enjoyed being there in the past and I hope to be there in person in the future. So, um, yes, today I am going to read. It's kind of a celebration for me. I, I'm doing some readings now from this new book, which just came out, as Galen said, Alive Until You're Dead. And uh, it's um, got a lot of things to do with our Zen practice in it. So I'm going to be reading from the book and I'll read. My idea is that I will read three different pieces. Uh, and after each reading, which will only be maybe between five and 10 minutes, um, we'll have some time for I'll pause before I go on to the next bit for Q&A or comments or whatever. Uh, and, and do we have until um, 10, 9, 10.45 your time? Is that right? Yes. Okay. Okay, good. Well, I'll keep an eye on the time. So um, my, my writing, as, as, as are my talks, as some of you may know already, are very personal. And I kind of offer an apology for that in a sense, but, or an explanation that I'm not writing about myself because I'm such an important person, but because I'm investigating the human condition here and I am using myself as an example of a human being, which I, because I am the human being that I know best. So my explorations are, are really about the condition we share, but I'm using my own experiences in the hope that you will be able to relate to them. Uh, so, and this book, I've written in the past about aging. One of my books is called Zen, um, This Is Getting Old, Zen and the Art of, what's it? What's the name of it anyway? This is Getting Old, um, Zen Thoughts on Aging with Humor and Dignity. Okay, well, this book is not really another book about getting old. Uh, this book is really about mortality and what it means to be a human being who is going to die and how does our mortality uh, and the fact of our mortality affect our life. Uh, there's a lot of correlation you may have noticed between getting old and dying, but um, I'm really focusing more here on impermanence. What does it really mean to us and how um, it enlivens our life, actually? So uh, impermanence, we usually think of impermanence as something we don't really like. It's one of Buddha's teachings of the three marks of existence. 
and it's a hard thing impermanence it means we lose everything that we love this is tr all true uh, but impermanence is also about birth not just death and and impermanence is crucial and wonderful and the plum tree in the winter is all bare and doesn't have any leaves or blossoms on it and thanks to impermanence some time goes by and pretty soon there it is with beautiful blossoms all over it so impermanence means birth as well as death so and it also gives meaning to life anyway because just imagine if we were not mortal what if we really weren't ever going to die that would be absolutely horrible if you stopped to think about it if you would just if you still had your human body you would get older and older and older and you'd have to keep replacing parts and you'd have to be endlessly going to the doctor and taking more and more supplements but you just keep on being here and your cute little children and grandchildren would grow up and they'd turn into other wizened up old people crowding up the planet along with the rest of us and they wouldn't be so cute anymore. And, and you'd wake up day after day and maybe you'd wake up in the morning and think, oh my God, not another day. So um, I think it's really, we're lucky. Let's be grateful we're going to die. So I'm going to uh, start by reading a couple of pieces from the book that have to do with ancestors. There's several themes in the book, and one of them turns out to be some emphasis on the idea of ancestors, which is a big um, part of, of Zen practice too. We honor our ancestors. And so I'm, and we have ancestors because of mortality, because generations come and go, and we have this long list of ancestors. We have ancestors who are still alive too we can adopt people as ancestors but anyway i'm going to read from a couple of pieces on ancestors so this is this first excerpt is from a chapter called we will be ancestors too zen people talk a lot about how great the buddhist ancestors are i used to take a dim view of the whole business of honoring ancestors when I first began to practice in my 30s, I was impatient with the emphasis on the lineage, a long list of dead men's names from India, China, and Japan. About 15 years ago, or maybe it was more now, I'm not sure, thanks to pressure from women practitioners and our male allies, we began chanting the names of women ancestors as well as men in our formal Zen services, a historic turn. But in my early days, I thought the lineage a dusty business, like a pile of tattered diplomas on crumbling parchment, having nothing to do with me or my life. Now I realize that the ancestors are my lifeblood. We are all made of the ancestors who came before us, those who bore us and those who bore the ones who bore us, all the way back through the generations to great-grandmother and great-grandfather Amoeba. Some of our ancestors may not have been admirable people, but we come from them too, whether we like them or not. People who are adopted may not know who their blood ancestors are, but we come not only from blood ancestors, but also 
from the people who raised us, who taught us to look both ways before we crossed the street and how to tie our shoes. I'm here because of all the teachers, the first grade teacher who taught me to read, the sixth grade teacher who taught me the 10 point scale of hardness from talc to diamond, the high school and college teachers who helped me love Shakespeare and George Eliot. Come to think of it, Eliot and Shakespeare are themselves my ancestors, as is everyone who handed on the culture that shapes my consciousness without me even knowing it. I'm talking to you now, thanks to the homo sapiens who first used words and their descendants who kept passing the language along until it got to me. Language that organizes what I see and hear. Dark, light, square, round, soft, loud. I acknowledge the many people who have been robbed of knowing who their biological ancestors are because the link has been broken by slavery, genocide, war, displacement. There are also people who have been robbed of their cultural and spiritual ancestors as the past has been torn away from them. There are people who honor and, but all people can honor and receive guidance from the tree ancestors, the ocean ancestors, the mountain ancestors, and the star ancestors. Um, when I was working with Florence Kaplow on the book, The Hidden Lamp, the collection of teachings from wise Zen women of the past, Buddhist women of the past, uh, I came to also appreciate ancestors in a more pers really personal way. And I realized that um, I made a great discovery about ancestors. You can adopt whoever you want as an ancestor. You don't get to choose your biological parents and grandparents, but when you're adopting ancestors, you get to invite the people you admire, the teachers, historical figures, writers, and artists who have influenced you and encouraged you to be your ancestors. They're not going to turn you down. I have adopted Satsujo as a third grandmother, and I take her with me as I go through life. Well, Satsujo, I've talked about her and written about her, but she was one of the um, ancestors in the hidden lamp, and I particularly connect to her. So I really began to think of her in particular as my one of my grandmothers, in a way. And I, there are other people. Dogen, I've started to think of as as my ancestor after all these years of studying Dogen. He, I mean, he's every all of our ancestor. But I take these people with me in my heart in a way that is full of sort of personal gratitude to them. And we can all do that. So um, now I'm going to read a couple of piece, uh, pieces from another uh, essay um, about ancestors. This essay is called uh, Make Your Body a Sundial. Every year I celebrate Thanksgiving <clears throat> excuse me, with the same group of extended family and friends. None of these people are Buddhists, but at some point during the long meal, I make everyone stop talking. I stand up from the table that is laden with turkey and sweet potatoes, or sometimes now it's vegetarian turkey, and I read to them from Dogen's instructions for the Tenzo. The Tenzo, as you know, is the head cook in a monastery. 
When I first get up to read, my friends and relatives groan affectionately, muttering, here comes the lecture about the rice and the eyeballs. But they have come to appreciate Dogen too. His words are an expected part of our ritual. I tell them how Dogen says we should take care of our rice as though it is our own eyeball, and we should prepare food with kind mind. Kind mind is parental mind. We should look after water and grain with compassionate care as though tending your own children. And then to make them laugh, and because I want them to know that the Buddhists of the past were human beings like us, I read from Dogen's instructions for taking food. This is a less familiar uh, piece of writing, but it's very delightful. And it's instructions to the monks on how to eat. Do not look into other monks' bowls, arousing envy. Do not throw balls of rice into your mouth. So remember that the next time you're having a formal meal. My niece, Sasha, now grown, tells me that sometimes in a restaurant, she finds herself looking over at another customer's plate and wishing she'd ordered that. Then she says to herself, do not look into other monks' bowls, arousing envy. So it turns out I'm passing Dogen's teachings along. I'm in the lineage and Sasha's in the lineage too. If the ancestors of the past want to talk to the generations of the present and the future, it's our job to help them do it. We can carry their teachings from another time and place right to the family table. Now here's a quote from Dogen. Each moment is all being, is the entire world. Reflect now whether any being or any world is left out of the present moment. It's all here, right now, in me and around me, in what Dogen calls the time being. I think of the time being as vertical time, in contrast to chronological, sequential time. The ancestors are here with me right now, And the babies who haven't been born yet are here now, too, already walking and talking. In the fall of 2011, I spent a day with the Sacred Sites Peace Walk, led by Japanese Buddhists and Native Americans. The walk's twofold purpose was to honor and protect Native American sacred sites and to raise awareness about the dangers of nuclear power. This this came... It's about six months after the Fukushima um, accident. Um, These two purposes were braided together as one, honoring the ancestors of the past and taking care of the ancestors to come. We visited a Native American burial ground near Mission San Jose, where Indian people were buried in unmarked graves. I think this was a, a burial site that the tribe had fairly recently acquired for their own use to bury unburied bodies, bodies that had been dug up. We stood in a circle on the bumpy grass and a wand of burning sage was passed around the circle for healing. The Ohlone leader, Corinna Gould, told us that they had recently reburied a baby there, a baby 2,000 years old, because its remains had been dug up from its first burial site, along with the remains of other ancestors, to make room for a housing development. 
I wondered, how could a baby be 2,000 years old? We each made an offering of a pinch of tobacco at the center of the circle as three young Indians drummed and sang. I thought about the little body going into the ground and out again and in again, thousands of years later. The little bones coming apart over the years. Our ancestors were babies. Our babies will be ancestors. It's our job to take care of them. If we want to be helpful to the ones, oh, wait here. Now, if we want to be helpful to the ones who will come after us, let's show a little gratitude to the ones who came before. How hard is that? We're links in a beautiful chain. Hey, we're part of a parade. Stand under the sun and make of your body a sundial. Watch your shadow swing around you. Turn yourself into an hourglass. Let the sand run down your spine. Chrono chronograph, timepiece, keeper of the calendar, you are nothing but time. There is not, after all, a contradiction between being here now and remembering the many generations behind us and the many generations to come. I like the feeling that my life is a leaf in the generation of leaves. My life is a my life is a leaf. I'm a link. I'm a blink. When I get away from my appointment book, from busyness, when I sit down for a drink of water beside a stream in the sun, I feel completely present. I watch a lizard skitter under a rock. At the same time, I feel how huge the mountains are and how long their lives, how tiny and brief I am, a bright flash in a pan. So I'd like to stop for a bit now and um, I'll see if anyone has any comments they'd like to make or about, about ancestors. Do you have any thoughts about um, who your ancestors are? Do you have people you've, you've adopted or um, how does it feel to you to think of yourself as an ancestor? Do you have people for whom you're already being practicing grandmother mind? You don't have to be a grandmother to have grandmother mind. Um, so any, any thoughts you have about these things or questions or comments? We could take a few minutes. Galen over here. Can you hear me? Uh, yes. <laughs> Carol. Oh, I see Carol Schmidt. Yes. Hi. She's one of your ancestors. Ah. Yes, she is. Carol, do you want to unmute yourself and say something? You're muted. Uh, first, Sue, this is Galen. I would like to say something. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you. I thank you so much. I love hearing this. Can I confess I had a thought? I love the idea of adopting ancestors. And then I thought, can I disinvite some ancestors? <laughs> I think that's a great question. Well, maybe, I don't know. I kind of think maybe not. You mean some of your blood ancestors? Yes, yeah, some of those. <laughs> <laughs> 
those are the ones. I mean, you don't need to disinvite the people that aren't already your ancestors. No, I've definitely got some blood ancestors that I would like to disinvite. But actually, part of what I'm doing now is exploring those very ancestors and what they did and quest asking myself, you know, what does this mean for me that um, I had ancestors who did terrible things. So I, I think you can dis, you can find a way to dis, maybe disconnect your karma or or try to heal their karma yourself. Uh-huh. But I think I don't think you really get to disinvite them. I think that's part of <laughs> the whole process of this life, this river that we're part of, and the generations of leaves. We, these are the leaves that were here on the tree before us. Thank you very much. So should I just call on people who have their hand raised? Is that a good process? Yeah, and Vicky is sitting right next to you. She will help you. Oh, okay, good. So, well, I do see Carol Schmidt's hand raised. So you need to unmute yourself. No? She can't unmute herself. How about now? Can you speak, Carol? <laughs> Can you open your mouth and say something? So we... <laughs> Can you unmute everyone? Now I can speak. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Sue, so much for, for recognizing me. I, um, I'm reading your book very slowly and very delightedly. I'm into the chapter about friendship now and Jenny, but um, I've only marked one place. I marked one place in your book prior to that I've read so far. I have a book. I may have a bookmarker in it. And it's the line you read today uh, about, um, I thought the lineage a dusty business. And the line that affected me deeply is like a pile of tattered diplomas on crumbling parchment having nothing to do with me and my life, me or my life. And I have someplace in some boxes, someplace, my college records and my, you know, <laughs> my grades and, and notes from what classes I liked. And, and those are like really buried, but there's a lot more clutter, you know, closer up. But it caused me to really reflect on what has to do with me in my life right now. What, what you know, all this Detrius, all this stuff around me, what if it really has to do with me and my life? So just that one line, like a pile of tattered diplomas on crumbling parchment, having nothing to do with me or my life. I just, I bow to you, Sue, and I thank you so much for that. Well, Carol, thank you for making that connection between those tattered diplomas, that metaphor I used, and the actual real true crumbling crumbling and tattered diplomas and transcripts and stuff that we have in our, well, some of us, some of us have still in our boxes in the attic or whatever in a closet. So that is an important matter. And, and there's a later chapter in the book called The Sorting Sisters, talking about a group of uh, friends and I who get together on Zoom and 
go through our boxes of tattered diplomas and throw them out because they don't have anything to do with our lives anymore or pick out the things that we want to save. But anyway, that's a very important question, especially as we get older and are sort of looking back over our lives. Thank you, Galen. Nice to see you again. So anybody else want to make a comment? Um, there's more to come. I'll go on reading if anybody else, if nobody else has something to say right now. Yes. Uh, Kirsten. Can you unmute yourself, Kirsten? Hmm. I, I don't know. This seems to be an ongoing okay. issue. Okay. okay, there we go. It turns out the host has to, like, give me permission to unmute. Yeah. Uh, what this, one of the things this brings up for me is I have a, a really good friend who does history study. And, and you mentioned looking at your ancestors and having to look at things that you don't like to see. And, um, and I just wanted to say how what she speaks about is how free she feels by looking at that stuff. Like it transforms her today and, and therefore it transforms all beings. And, um, and so it's important to do that if you can. Mm -hmm. uh, in her case, sh her ancestors were enslavers. So she works on her, um, uh, that part of her history and, um, and it helps her uh, heal, heal and maybe heal a whole lineage. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I just wanted to bring that up. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen, for mentioning that. That's, Yeah. That's my situation as well. I have ancestors who were enslavers and I'm exploring letters and documents that I've been able to find. And, and it's just so, uh, it's mind boggling, you know, it's very, but I, I know some other people who are older who are really making very deep explorations into the idea of healing healing the past somehow or healing healing the harm that was done by our ancestors what what can we do anyway it's it's a very tricky business and you don't want to get into a well there's various pitfalls along the way but anyway i won't go into it but it's a really important exploration i think and i'm glad you brought it up and it takes courage to Well, I think maybe I'll go on and read from another section. I will say that there is a chapter in the book that takes up that question to some extent um, called uh, Sentient Beings Are Numberless. Okay, so now I'm going to read. Oh, well, I thought I'd read a little bit about um, my time at Tassajara. Um, which many of you probably know is a uh, 
practice place in the mountains of California that belongs to San Francisco Zen Center. Galen has been there for a long time. She lived there. And some of you, others of you have probably been to Tassajara as well. And Carol lived at Tassajara. In fact, I met Carol at Tassajara years ago. Um, so, and this chapter is, it's about my experience. I've done a couple of intensive practice periods. I have not lived there for years as some have done, but I've done two three-month-long practice periods. One of them was many years ago, and one of them was quite recently, just before the pandemic. And so I have a chapter about my experiences at that time and what it was like. I was just about the oldest person there. I was 75, and it, and I was kind of going there with the feeling, well, I, I still have time to figure it all out. I'm going to figure out the meaning of my life just in time before I leave it. And this is my chance to do it, kind of <laughs> which was a ridiculous approach. But um, it was a very, it was a great experience. And as I read a, read some from this chapter, I don't want to imply that everybody should go do this. What I think is interesting is also the question of how do we bring this kind of deep silence and exploration into our lives if we can't go on retreat for three months in the wilderness which most people can't do um how else can you bring in this kind of uh, silent exploration can you find short retreats to go on even just are other ways what other ways are there of allowing yourself to just go deeply into yourself and try to let go of self-clinging or whatever it is that is your deepest um, vow in a way. So I'm going to read, I, I think I'll read a little bit less than I was planning to read because I, I want to save time. But um, Okay, so... First of all, the schedule is very challenging. The wake-up bell roused us at 3.50 a.m. to days of meditation, study, and work at our assigned jobs with a break before supper for bathing or exercise. As Buddha mentioned, if you don't make a fuss about getting what you want all the time, you'll be much happier. But if you cling to the desire to stay in your cozy sleeping bag as the wake-up bell is clanging in your ears, you're heading down a rough road. I came to Tassajara wholeheartedly, wanting to release my grip on preferences. I wanted to stop worrying about whether what I was doing was the very thing that I most wanted to be doing at that moment. Clearly, the older I got, the more frequently I would experience unpleasantness. I saw that it behooves an old woman to learn to roll with the punches, so every morning when the wake-up bell rang, I rolled. One of the greatest challenges at Tassajara, much harder for me than the cold, was the lack of sleep. If all went smoothly, you could get about six hours of sleep on regular nights. In monastic settings, both Buddhist and Christian, 
There seems to be a traditional belief that lack of sleep is good for your spiritual practice because it humbles you and weakens your ego. Yes, it humbled me, but it did not help my spiritual practice. My constant torpor was a kind of hell. My heavy head fell forward repeatedly. I was tormented by swarms of one-second dreams, and I jerked away awake again and again with a cramped neck. During the two periods of Zazen before breakfast, I fought sleep and lost over and over. I was often sleepy during the day at lecture and study hall, as well as Zazen. And the last two periods of the day after supper were a dead loss as far as spiritual practice was concerned. Okay. Um, Oh, and yet to my own surprise and even satisfaction, I found the stamina to follow the schedule. Following the schedule is a sacred tenet of the practice period. I kept dragging my body back to the zendo, sleepy or not, while chanting inwardly, no picking and choosing, no picking and choosing. I'm not sure how useful this was, but at least I proved that I wasn't a quitter. I was the second oldest monk in the valley by just a few months. And even if my chin was on my chest, I was no slouch. I was sitting in a chair because I, I have trouble after my knee replacement sitting on the floor. I'm starting to be able to do it again. But at that point, I was sitting in a chair. And because of that, I did not have acute physical pain during Zazen from all the Zazen, which I was very grateful for and which is many people do have that quite a lot of physical pain from sitting so much Zazen. Mental pain, however, was my companion. When I wasn't asleep in the Zendo, I worried. I had several soundtracks to listen to. Isn't it selfish of me to spend three months contemplating my navel in the mountains? In Berkeley, friends were demonstrating on behalf of people seeking sanctuary at the border. Shouldn't I be there with them? I focused on the coolness of the air as it entered my nostrils and the warmth of the air as it left, a remarkable change. But what good did that do the asylum seekers? <coughs> I worried further. I'm too old to benefit. This is supposed to be a training monastery, but I've been practicing Zen for over 40 years. What do I think I'm training for at this point? It's one thing to come here as a young person to learn how to open up your eating bowls and where to put your chopsticks, to deepen your practice for the years ahead. But what am I supposed to be learning so close to the end of my life? And worse yet, I said to myself, if I haven't gotten it yet, I never will. I'm not capable of awakening. I can't go deep. My meditation is a joke. Um, so then I say that, that I worked in the kitchen and that, Working in the kitchen in the afternoon work period was a relief, and I really loved it. It was um, so something where I could just attend to what I was doing. And we all worked together, and it was very a very beautiful practice. Uh, I, I, in the kitchen, I had to pay attention, but I didn't have to think. I was cutting beets one day with three other people in a kind of octopus chorus of perfect 
harmony, getting the beats into the bucket. I didn't have to decide anything. The beats chased away my worries as the bright slices fell away from my knife. I could see the white bucket filling with red, and I knew I was helping to feed the sangha. Once, for fun, I carved a slice into the shape of a heart, and that night at supper, miraculously, the server spooned that very heart made out of a beet into the pot, into, out of the pot and into my little bowl. In the days full of sitting, I involuntarily fell into a sort of life review process. This can be a positive developmental stage for old folks, but I was often looking through my habitual lens, reciting my old regrets to myself. I thought of my failures in love, my mistakes as a mother, my unfinished writing projects. I thought of how lonely I had been and sometimes still was and how I had practiced Zen for decades and still didn't understand the great matter, as one of the old Zen masters put it. Many tears landed on my chest. Damn it, I said to myself, I knew this would happen. You will think me mad to want to do this practice, but I have to tell you that all the while I was glad to be there. Some faith in the Dharma sustained me in the form of blue jays calling into the silence or a line from the morning service, the stone woman gets up to dance, or the evening offering of a hot ginger drink in the warm and silent kitchen. I could think of myself unhappy in a moment, and yet rejoice at the sound of the rain on the zendo roof, the jays, the incense smells, the round of days and bells. Once in a while in Zazen, I was present in the room. It would just happen. The stories I told myself lost their juice, turned to dust, and blew away. My arms hung comfortably from the coat hanger of my shoulders. I could feel the actual warmth of my living brain inside my skull. I listened to the stream that couldn't stop singing and to the jays who stopped and started. I was sustained by the invisible pulse of my shadowy fellow monks breathing all around me, all of us like swimmers in the half-light, sharing the time that was given to us by the sound of the stream. As I listened to the sound of the stream, the sound of time passing, I began to let go of regrets. A voice in my head, probably mine, declared, there's no such thing as if only I had, if onlys don't exist. What had happened had happened. If only had not happened. I'm old, but I'm not dead, and it isn't over yet. Uh, One day it came to me that the last part of my life was the perfect time for me to be a Tapasahara. This practice period could help me accept the life that's gone before and help me be truly alive until I die. One day, toward the end of the practice period, two fellow monks, both dear Dharma sisters and I, were cutting heads of cauliflower into florets to fill a five-gallon bucket. There was no one else in the kitchen, and so, like three unsupervised children, we fell into conversation. 
even though we were supposed to have only functional speech. I said, I'm feeling guilty for not volunteering to wash dishes when the Fukutin asked us. My friend John said out of the blue, oh, just get over yourself, Sue. It was so unexpected, <clears throat> so unlike her kind self that I was undone. It came like an arrow straight to its target. But had I really heard her right? I looked up from the cauliflower to see mischief at the corners of her mouth. And before I could think, I burst out laughing. That's it, I said. That's exactly right. That's the whole point of being here. All at once, I was flying. Get over yourself, Sue. In my white apron with a green bandana tied around my forehead to keep my hair out of the food, I seemed to be soaring over the kitchen roof, getting over myself above and beyond the old-fashioned turbine ventilator that rotated in the wind. At the same time, down in the kitchen, we were still putting florets into the bucket. My friend Ruth said offhandedly, like an ancient Zen master tossing me an instruction, it's a koan. We all cracked up then. In the days that remained, I often told myself, just get over yourself, Sue. And every time I said it, I felt happy. In the early morning dark, Walking in my robes to the, zen, to the zendo for meditation one morning, I looked up at the bright stars and saw Orion, his dog at his heels, leaning over me as if protecting me. I called up, thank you, stars, for letting me be in the universe. Thank you, Big Bang, for getting the whole thing going. I gave them a big shout out. The stars reached across the millions of light years between us from another eon all the way to my retinas. So, anybody have any thoughts about that? About retreat or questions? Matthew. Hi, um, can you see me? Glenn? I see Glenn. Yes. Yeah. Maybe I can stand up. Oh, oh, I see. I see. You're in the, yeah, yeah. There you are. Yes, there I am. I see you. Hi. Uh, thank you for that, that story. I just, I, I don't know if this is directly relevant, but, um, it brought immediately to mind uh, an encounter that I had recently that um, specifically your story of your friend inviting you to get over yourself. Um, just this week, I had, I, I had a moment that was very, that strikes me as being very similar to that when uh, somebody uh, who I care. Oh, sorry. I'm not trying to. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, so, somebody that I, I care about a lot and who cares about me a lot as well um, in sort of an inevitable moment of uh, frustration um, uh, pointed out to me very clearly that I, I don't know my role hmm. in the relationship that 
this person and I had. And at first it was insulting. It felt condescending. Um, but at the same time, I didn't, I didn't really understand what the implications of, of that were. And so I had to think about it. And um, I, I, it was very liberating because I realized uh, it, it was, it was an arrow point to the, you know, to my core. Um, I was not being appropriately respectful of my, my, my role in this relationship and hence um, sort of my Dharma place um, in this specific environment. And so um, uh, I wanted to uh, uh, thank you this morning for sharing that story that resonated with me. Thank you. Thank you for your, your story. It's really amazing how a good friend can sometimes just off the cuff say something that makes a big difference that becomes a kind of a, does become a koan or a, a mantra that can go along with us. It's a gift that comes and it takes, it takes a, a shift in our usual posture. Instead of feeling corrected, you can feel um, blessed with some insight, you know. Right. It, it's easy to feel scolded and corrected and try to put that aside as much as possible. Yeah, can I can I ask a quick follow up question? Do you feel that do you feel that your practice has made you more open and less resistant to these kinds of moments that can so easily feel like criticism, but can actually be teaching experiences? Yeah, I really do think that is true. I definitely feel that's true, um, and I think it's because of. I think the bodhisattva vows and the vows that we take help me. And I think my my genuine desire to, the way I always put it, is to let go of self-clinging. I feel how self-clinging causes me suffering. And my desire to let go of it is very present. And so I think that helps me to hear what people have to offer me in trying to help me let go of my self-clinging. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'll take, take, I see Glenn, you have your hand up. Um, so why don't you go and we'll take this. This will be the last comment on this piece. Thank you, Susan. First of all, very much for your, your talk this morning and reading from your book. I, I have your other book, uh, this, as well as uh, the women's koans are ancient. Um, this term came home to me very strongly uh, this morning in your talk when you talked about um, this question you had about shouldn't you be out working with the asylum seekers that your friends were working with? And it made me realize how often I discount uh, uh, the power of my own uh, need for asylum and the refuge offered in Buddhism. Mm. Um, and those three refuges are, are ways of taking, um, of nurturing the asylum, which is at the heart of this beating body, mm. this need for asylum. Um, 
so so I and it sounds to me like uh, your friends get over yourself and your response to that um, it was that um, that real deep understanding that yeah asylum was mine that was my birthright mm-hmm. and I've been ignoring it all these years mm. so so I want to I guess two things. One is uh, right now my practice is uh, in Zazen is to note what the initial primary inquiring impulse is. Not what my words are mm-hmm. about that inquiry, but what is actually what's the inquiry that is not, it's just ba wa wa wa. To a mother, ba wa 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 speaks volumes. Okay. You know, so what that inquiring and what is the asylum that is that I think mm-hmm. is being um, not offered? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think it's a very pervasive in our country right now mm-hmm. that we don't, first of all, acknowledge that we do seek asylum in this practice of getting up at 3.50 or in my case, 4.50 in the morning. <laughs> I'm in Santa Fe. Oh, oh. So this, this practice is really, um, is the practice of seeking asylum for 30 okay. minutes. There's nothing else required. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your comment about asylum and that um, your use of that word where I was I, and pointing out that I was seeking asylum at Tassajara and we do need to seek asylum for ourselves. And in that way, we're better able to help others who are seeking asylum too. And that's, that was a very beautiful bridge you made. Thank you for that. I'm going to read um, the last little piece. It's almost time for us to stop. So um, I have time to read a last little bit, but I don't think that there's going to be time for questions afterwards. I think it will just take us to the end. So I'll end with this last bit. This is from the um, last chapter of the book, which is called Meeting the Final Deadline. We human beings could be the only species who are lucky enough to know we are going to die. I say lucky because this knowledge makes life shine. A sign I made hangs over my desk. Don't think for a moment you're not going to die. Does this seem weird to you? Every time I happen to notice it, I wake up for a minute. I remember not only my approaching death, but the happy corollary. I'm not dead yet. I'm alive. I used to be afraid of death. Now, not so much. It's partly a side effect of getting old. Old people in general are, by their own reports, less afraid of death than young people. We have less to lose, and some of us are getting tired. As our aches and pains get worse, we may even look to death as a safe form of pain management. At 16, I was old enough to drive. As a septuagenarian, I'm old enough to die. 
I don't want to die right now, but I would, but it wouldn't be a tragedy if I did. I've had a long turn on the swing. A lot of people I know have already done it. And even though I don't exactly expect to see them again, I'll be expressing my solidarity with them when I go. If you can do it, Mary, Friedel, Molly, I can do it too. Dying is becoming a companionable thing to do. Apparently, all human beings know how to die. I find it reassuring that everybody who's gone before me has managed it, and I trust that I'll be able to do it too. My biggest fear is that I won't be ready. I fear dying too soon before I've finished the sorting, before I've let go of all my lingering fears and regrets, before I understand that the life I've led has been just right, sorrows and all. Anne Aiken was a 20th century Zen practitioner and the wife of the Zen teacher, Robert Aiken. She was a student of Master Yamada Cohen. One day he asked her, what do you think of death? She replied, why, it's like when a bus stops before you, you get on and go. I want to be like her. I want to accept my death before I die. That story is from The Hidden Lamp about Anne Aiken. I'm a list maker, <clears throat> particularly of to-do lists. What I have to do today or this week or before I teach a class or take a trip, even though I'm the one who makes the lists, the lists themselves often get the upper hand. These days, I have a to-do list of things to accomplish before I die, not written down, but in my head, like finishing writing projects, reconnecting with certain old friends, downsizing my material possessions, and sorting the boxes of photos in the attic. It's not a bucket list, not a list of fun adventures, but of responsibilities. Aspiring to be a reliable person, how can I take time for the fun things until I finish my duties? Sometimes I feel as though I've spent most of my life grow growing up and getting ready to live. And now, instead of actually living, I'm spending the last part getting ready to die. What a waste. <clears throat> I do finish things when I have a deadline, like this essay I'm writing. If you're reading it, that means I finished it. <laughs> or if I'm reading it to you, <laughs> the book got published. And for this reason, I often create deadlines for myself in order to make myself get things done. But the downside of deadlines is deadline stress. I now feel a dull but constant deadline stress about the big deadline ahead, a deadline that I did not create, the deadline. I can't get an extension on this one, and yet I have the notion that I have to do everything on my list before I die. Is this what I think life is, really? Colon. Here's the list. Get born. Learn to read and write. Make your to-do list on a really long piece of paper. Check each thing off one by one. Die. No. <laughs> It's time to let go of the idea of checking everything off. Time to practice accepting my life as it has been and is now. I'll do the best I can to get ready. And for my kids and my siblings' sake, I'll keep on sorting. But I'll remember to be alive in the meantime. 
I'll die in the middle of something, no matter what, a day, a breath, a visit with a friend, something will not be finished. I might as well toss out the big to-do list and go to the beach at least once in a while. I might as well be present in my life. In any case, I will meet the deadline. I can't fail no matter what, because I will be right there meeting death when I die. Stop there. So, thank you all.